to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. No subkick doesn't need it, <laughs> Mate, does he? When, the man. I reckon when you, when you do a, a book about Leonardo da Vinci, it doesn't need a subtitle. Uh, there's an interesting story to kick it off. That Around the time when he was uh, hitting the milestone of turning 30, Leonardo da Vinci, he wrote a letter to the big dog of Milan um, listing all these reasons why he should get a job. He'd been... Moderately successful as a painter, but basically he had this all these like ten paragraphs saying how good he was. He had engineering skills. He designed bridges, waterways, cannons, armored vehicles, public buildings, and then somewhere down the bottom, just tucked away on the eleventh paragraph, it just said, "You know what? I can also paint too, if you need." <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> and he, of course, he, of course, he could paint as we know right now, and because he'd go on to create two of the most famous paintings in history: the Last Supper and the Mona Lisa. But in his own mind, from his perspective, he was actually a man of science and engineering as much as he was a painter. Yeah, he had a, a passion um, that was both playful and uh, and obsessive. He pursued innovative studies in anatomy, fossils, birds, the heart, flying machines, optics, botany, geology, water flows, weaponry. Uh, so he's definitely what you'd call the Renaissance man, even though probably a lot of times you just think, yeah, Mona Lisa, maybe Last Supper. There's all this shit that I had no idea that he'd done. Mm, so wild, he was, wild shit. He was a wild man. So he was really at the intersection between two areas of, of study, and one was science and art. And it was his scientific explorations that informed his art and made that so wild. So he actually went to the point of doing some wild stuff, man. We were just saying before, if you saw Leonardo walking around today, you'd throw him in a mental asylum. <laughs> Definitely. So he peeled off the faces of cadavers, whatever they are. But dead, he did dead bodies. Dead bodies. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, delineated the muscles that move the lips. So peeling off, not just fe- peeling off the face of a dead human, but start playing around with the lips and seeing how <laughs> that right. works. And obviously that came uh, to fore in the world's most memorable smile, the Mona Lisa. He also studied human skulls. I don't know how he got his hand on so many skulls, but he had all these intricate anatomical drawings of bones and teeth and everything that goes into a skull. And really it was this skeletal uh, anatomy stuff that he then used to inform his painting, St. Jerome of the Wilderness. So Isaacson, he obviously cherry-picks the biggest dogs in history about anyone he's going to choose to, to write about. And he chose Leonardo because it's the main theme of all of his biographies so far. It's the ability of the people he writes about to make connections across disciplines. So arts and sciences, humanities and technology. I think Steve Jobs, what we did was what? He was um, art and technology or mm. humanities and technology. So this being the key to innovation, imagination and genius. Yeah, Isaacson, he says, yep, he was a genius. He was widely imaginative. He was passionately curious. He was creative across multiple disciplines. But he says we've kind of got to be careful of slapping that word genius because if you just say, oh, yeah, he was a genius, it kind of makes it feel like, yeah, he's he's over there. We're over here. We can never get to that. But he was saying that if you call him a genius, it almost minimizes what he did because he wasn't really born with anything magical other than what you and I, or maybe not you and I, uh, maybe. But he's saying that you know he was he was just a normal person, and you can't just say he did all this cool stuff because he was a genius. It wasn't that he was born with anything special. It's just that he did some really wild shit to get to the point of, I guess, developing genius. Leonardo da Vinci had the good luck to be born out of of wedlock, a bit similar to the other lad, Steve Jobs, from his uh, biography, which is uh, actually a critical thing if you want to pave your own path in life back in the day you'd probably almost certainly follow the footsteps of your father but now without a father uh, he could actually pave his own way so that was a big win 
That's right. And it was a bit of a win as well that he didn't get sent to these fancy Latin schools that, where they were taught classics and humanities and they were well-groomed to be aspiring professionals and merchants. Um, instead, he didn't get to go to school. He didn't really learn to read. He didn't really learn his numbers. He was very much self-taught in all those things. And it does seem weird to say he was lucky to you know, not, not have a, a traditional upbringing. But really, that's even though he says he was an unlettered man, as in he couldn't read or write, he was able to use this to his advantage. Yeah, he he said unlettered man um, with a badge of honor, really, because he he loved that. He sort of looked down on the people who were just so learned and and academic, because what he lacked in formal education, like some of his peers, he made up for it with an intense desire and ability to just sit there and observe all the the wonders of nature, and he really push himself to perceive the shapes and shadows with wondrous precision. Like if you were to sit in there with a coffee in front of you, <laughs> probably just sitting there with a coffee. Mm. But he's sitting there in a totally different mindset, probably looking at the shapes, staring at the patterns on the, the cup and the light reflecting on it from the, the sun <laughs> and then looks at the tree over there and how that's reacting to the coffee. He's in a totally different plane in that totally, sense. Totally. He was um, particularly good at apprehending movement. Like so... Both movement, I guess, from like physical things, like say the wind blowing and how a, how a leaf uh, flaps in the air or how a bird flaps its wings, but also the movement, I guess, of emotions across a person's face. So by watching intently people, uh, almost it felt like he was watching them in slow motion and being able to understand how does the brain feel an emotion, how does that translate into the face and the body? Because obviously then he was able to use that in his paintings later. So the story begins when his mother died at 12 and when he moved to Florence at 15. And Florence, when he was 15 years old in the year of about, what, uh, the 1400s here, uh, it was wild. There was no place like it probably ever in history and more of a stimulating environment for creativity at this time. Its economy was once dominated by unskilled wool spinners. <laughs> so I don't know how much of your economy can flourish based on wool spinners. Who are unskilled. <laughs> unskilled wool spinners. That's the right. worst type of wool spinner. That's right. But then obviously we've got this uh, Medici family that brings all this money and funding and brings all these different types of artisans from all across the country and brings them all to this one place where they're able to interweave art, technology, commerce. Um, they brought you know wood carvers, silk workers, master painters, goldsmiths, jewelry craftsmen. All of them uh, got brought from across the country to live and work in Florence. So uh, a lot of the things I'm about to rattle off here, you're going to see it come up in a future book, How Innovation Works, which ties directly to this in, in Florence, and also previous ones, if you think about books like The Medici Effect. Um, quite literally, yeah. Quite literally, right? <laughs> yeah. So firstly, in this city, beautiful Florence had a lot of things going for it. Uh, number one, it was complete liberty, freedom. You could go wild shit and you're not going to get judged for it and thrown into a box. Secondly... Uh, it was a large, rich, and elegantly dressed population. Don't know what the dressing does, actually, but <laughs> apparently it's a big thing. Maybe it's just a Walt. perception, you know, placebo type thing. It had pure, clean water. It had castles, towns, lands, and people. It had a wild university um, where they had Greek and accounting and some of the, the innovations taught. It had masters in every art. So every art form had the superstars converging on this one place, and they were all acting in, in Florence. And finally, it had banks and business and agents all over the world. So, with a thriving commerce, it could actually let artisans go at it and actually get funded for their creative work. Yeah, it was really the, the coming together of all of these different um, small factors that really made Florence the birthplace, I guess, of the Renaissance. Um, a big one for Leonardo was that the cathedral was the most beautiful in Italy. 
Uh, if you've been to Florence or check it out, Il Duomo, uh, it was built by Filippo Brunelleschi and it was just, it's its pretty awesome. I feel like even just being there, especially someone like Leonardo who admired uh, things of beauty like that, mo- both the art side plus the engineering side to be able to get something that massive stand up like that, uh, he would have been like, yeah, this is the place for me. Mm. And like all innovation or like a lot of in- innovation, I wouldn't say all, uh, if you we cover a few different types in the book called The Shit They Never Taught You. <laughs> but um, like a lot of them, it's all happening really at the intersections where diverse talents are intermingling. You're adding um, something, a master here and adding it with another one. You've got a new master at the intersection. So silk makers went with gold beaters, architects mixed with artists, wood carvers mixed with other architects. Um, shops became studios, merchants became financiers, artisans became artists. So there's a lot of intermingling. Yeah, there was really no better place for this all to happen. And specifically, Florence's culture rewarded above all those people who were able to master and mix different disciplines. So basically, as we said, that book, The Medici Effect, was all about that. And this is the the actual Medici effect of the Medici's bringing all these people in. So around the time Leonardo was 14, he got his first apprenticeship with Verrocchio. Uh, and full name Andrea Del Verrocchio. He was a versatile artist and engineer and had one of the best workshops in Florence. So a pretty good place to get your apprenticeship. Yeah, what happened was um, uh, Leonardo's you know, dad, even though they didn't have a lot to do with each other, his dad took a bunch of drawings that Leonardo had done as a kid and went to show this big Verrocchio and he showed him and uh, he, was a, he was a pretty well-to-do bloke around town, Leonardo's father. And Verrocchio basically took one look at it and said, yeah, I need this kid to come work with me. He was really astonished by this, this boy's talent and he brought him in and gave him really a pretty rigorous training program. Um, they studied things like the surface anatomy, mechanics, drawing techniques, the effects of light and shade. And they did a whole bunch of this specific stuff to really develop that, the, the natural skills that Leonardo had. Yeah, and they weren't just doing just, uh, just one style of painting. They were doing random stuff like creating an ornate uh, tomb for Medici, sculpting a bronze statue, designing banners of uh, gilded flowers, curating the Medici's antiques and generating Madonna paintings for merchants. So, I mean, all these little things, part of the apprenticeship, they did um, pop up in different ways later in his career. And then it was also like, uh, uh, it wasn't just, they weren't just in a school uh, it was actually a real thing. They were actually trying to sell this stuff. They were trying to make money or they were trying to, you know, please, you know, rich investors or they were doing all these things. So it was a bit of skin in the game because it wasn't just, oh, let's just, you know, let's just make this sculpture because I'm the teacher and I'm saying you have to. It was actually to get some real world shit out of it as well. So one of the exercises Verrocchio's studio was, was drawing of drapery studies and they got uh, Leonardo doing this. So he would make clay models of figures and draping them with soft pieces of cloth dipped in plaster. And then he'd draw them patiently on thin sheets of cambric or linen in black and white with just the point of the brush. So it's very, <laughs> very specific. Very specific. So basically, yeah, they'd take something, they'd put a sheet over it and then they'd be sketching the sheet in a way that you could see all the different angles of the light and the shade and where do the lines go or where do the lines not go, where, where is it lit up, where is their shadow. Uh, if you just see a, a drawing of like one of these things, it's pretty wild to see how accurate they've been able to just draw a sheet and that was just something that they practiced every day. So it's really training the brain here into the artistic genius. If you think about how closely you need to focus and develop that, that deep, the deep practice that comes up a lot in a lot of books. So you've got the ability to to deploy this light and shade in ways that showed three-dimensional volume on a two-dimensional surface. And it helped him to figure out how light caresses an object and causes a bit of a glistening luster and sharpening the contrast. 
and reflect glow creeping from you know, one object to another in the heart of a shadow. That's right. And if you look at the difference between Leonardo's paintings, who have really, who's really studied this and practiced this, if you look at the clothing that people have, the different ruffles, the different shapes, the different shadows and stuff, uh, it looks so realistic compared to someone who probably hasn't. They're just drawing a, you know, a 2D T-shirt on somebody. It doesn't really have the same impact. It doesn't look anywhere near as close. So when mastering these techniques, another one he pioneered was uh, sfumato, and there's a technique of blurring contours and edges. You can almost say this is a metaphor in the way Leonardo lived as well as a literal way that he painted. Yeah, that's right. He didn't. Uh, a lot of people would draw straight lines. So if you're drawing a body, you draw the outline first and then you'd color it in later. Whereas Leonardo realized that in the real world, you don't actually see straight lines. I'm looking at you. I don't see a straight line where your shoulder is. It's a curved thing. It's a 3D thing. There's no hard edge. It kind of all blends into each other. And that's really the way he did his painting. He didn't start with drawing outlines. He drew and painted with this formato technique, which was about trying to get the lines to look like lines without actually drawing lines. So through this wild deep practice, eventually he got to the point where he got to one painting and it was this one was the, the baptism of Christ. And as an example of these techniques he learned from his, his boss, Verrocchio, and uh, plus a few pupils, but this is really the first time he clearly outgrew the master. Verrocchio just turned, put his head over his shoulder and goes, Jesus, that guy, <laughs> he's got me, he's 15, he, whatever he is, 16 years old, and he's already surpassed me. That's right. That, it was a thing that they did together, the, the baptism of Christ, where Verrocchio, the teacher, he drew a couple of, he drew one of the angels, and then uh, Leonardo painted the other angel. Basically, Verrocchio at the end, he looked and he's like, what the hell? Yours is incredible. And Verrocchio literally never painted ever again. <laughs> he literally got to the point where he's like, you know what? This is not me. i got to go do something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh <laughs> he broke God. him. And so that was clearly where the, uh, the, the, the pupil outgrew the master. So Leonardo's, one of his tricks was teaching himself. And he used to boast about not being formally educated. And he learned from his own experiences instead. And he'd have digs at all the people who'd go around like um, philosophical wankers citing ancient wisdom and talking about from what they learnt from books like like me and you. <laughs> That's so, it. Rather than the people who out there actually had skin in the game, dirt on their hands, making their own observations about the world and learning that way and informing themselves based on experiment. Yeah, that's it. He said, though I have no power to quote from authors as they have, I shall rely on a far more worthy thing on experience. So he was going out there and doing, and he had another quote. He said, he who has access to the fountain does not go to the water jar. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> he who has access to the fountain does not go to the water jar. You're saying if you can go and get your own water, you don't need, what's a water jar? I assume that's, you probably buy I don't know. It's in the town square. Anyway, it's good. We need a modern, a modern version. I think he's saying he can go and get his own water. He doesn't need to rely on other people getting his water for him. I think him. that's it. Yeah, well done. <laughs> so his first-hand experience meant he didn't have to worry about theory. And his natural thing was his, he was a natural observer and experimenter. And um, he wasn't wired nor trained to wrestle with just abstract concepts. It was just everything was rooted in the real world. Yeah. Interestingly, a lot of scientists, I guess, go from they have a theory and then they test it out in experiments to see if that theory is true or not. Leonardo went the other way. He didn't know anything about theory, so he just did experiments and used those experiments to determine the theory. And so he'd go out there and do wild shit. Uh, he'd see what happened, and then he'd create his theory after that, go back and test it to make sure it's true. Well, the scientific method itself was brought along apparently by Galileo about 112 years after Leonardo, and that was being the first one to actually, hey, 
develop experiments to verify what's true um, wasn't a thing in Leonardo's time. So, he was actually conducting the scientific method a lot before anyone else was. That's right. That's right. It's pretty epic that uh, before there was a scientific method, he was doing it this way. So, he learned from experience, number one, but he also learned from analogies. This was perhaps where he had that intersectional mind where he could take something from one field, which he'd actually gone so deep with his curiosity. And then when he went to another field, he could take the analogies from that and then sort of translate it across and really learn in a much more rapid way. Yeah, that's right. And I guess it makes it stick a lot better. If you've kind of already got some kind of structure there from something pre-existing, then you go towards something new, the ideas can kind of make it stick a lot better. So, he had a whole bunch of different examples here. One, he would draw a fetus in a womb and then on the same sheet of paper next to it, he'd draw like a seed uh, and how a seed grows as well. So, he's using that analogy of he kind of knew how plants worked, he kind of knew how humans worked and he was linking the two together by saying like a a fetus growing in a womb is similar to a a seed being planted and how that grows as well. Yeah, and he, he... For example, when he was like gutting up humans, uh, he was also, it was almost like a hydraulic engineer. He would design the waterways of a city, then compare it as an analogy to the human heart and then how, you know, how water flowed in in a bigger pipe than a thinner pipe and how that, you know, mixes together. And then also from um, engineering, like you'd look at how a tree grows, how the size of all the uh, the branches above the trunk is equal to the, the bottom of the trunk. And you say, hey, that's how I'm going to conduct my engineering. Mm. It's a phenomenal way of doing that because um, <laughs> it's bang on. You yeah. don't need all that bloody that wild theory stuff. You just, yeah, just say that. Just go look at a tree. Look Nature's tree. worked out how to build shit. <laughs> don't, you don't exactly. have to reinvent the wheel. He also invented musical instruments. He created a whole bunch of different musical instruments. And he, um, one way that he did it was linking how the larynx worked uh, to how a glissando recorder works and as in the tightening and uh, the shortening or lengthening of different strings and things, how it works in the voice box and how you can then create musical instruments out of it. He also, when he was like doing these wild dissections of limbs, he kind of linked it to like ropes and levers and pulleys. So, he's able to link the mechanical engineering stuff to the human body and basically was just a wild, wild dude doing a lot of wild things. He's a wild human and all of his learning really boiled down to his ability to observe and his curiosity. So, that that comes up again. Um, here's a test for you. When you're sitting there and you're watching a bird, we all like to watch the occasional bird Bird come and sit down. But do you, have you ever actually looked closely enough to see whether the bird moves its wing upward at the same speed as it flaps it down? <laughs> I would have just thought it was... I would have guessed pretty consistent. Just yeah, up, just down, up, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, up, down, up, down, up, down. Yeah. Whereas Leonardo worked out, actually, it's not quite so simple. There are some birds that <laughs> they flap down much faster than they flap up. Uh, so that's uh, birds like doves, uh, one example, and pigeons. They flap down much more swiftly. There's other ones uh, like crows that actually go down slower and go up quicker. And then there are some like magpies, which are even throughout. So he'd actually watched all these different types of birds. I don't even know how you'd work it out. But yeah, he was watching and he saw some birds are going fast down, slow up. Some are going slow down, fast up. And some are going consistent. <laughs> Insane, isn't it? <laughs> Insane. Mate, he'd ask questions. Why is the sky blue? How are clouds formed? What is yawning? Perhaps the weirdest one. Looking through his to-do lists, uh, Walter Isaacs, and he had thousands of pages here to, to check through them. One day he put on his to-do list, describe the tongue of the woodpecker. Man, that's a <laughs> if you think about your own to-do list, you know, go and buy veggies for dinner, mow the lawn, describe the tongue of a woodpecker. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's not I, something you do every day. I don't even know how you would, but then he, he actually did go and find a woodpecker and he found that what their tongue does is their tongue is very long out to obviously to um to lick shit out of the inside of a tree when they make a hole. But more impressively is is it actually recoils back inside and wraps around their brain as a bit of insulation for when they're whacking their head at you know massive speed and power against the tree to protect the brain from concussion. Yeah, and this is a dude who's a, meant we thought was an artist. He's <laughs> we thought he's, he's just a, yeah, Mona Lisa. That's pretty good, but uh, yeah, he's done all this other shit as well. Well, that seems like a waste of time, but he's well, to us anyway. <laughs> it clearly wasn't, but his curiosity did some more ambitious things. Um, uh, like for example, he's, he wanted to know which nerve causes the eye to move so that the motion of the eye moves the other. Mm. It's a pretty wild, ambitious project. Mm. Also, describe the beating of a human when it's in the womb. And uh, along with the woodpecker, he lists the jaw of the crocodile, the placenta of the calf as things he wanted to describe. So, <laughs> each inquiry, man, would probably take a, a lifetime of work. <laughs> Especially the one, the um, the placenta, what was the first one? The uh, the beginning of a human when it's in a womb. That's a yeah. well, it's philosophical almost. <laughs> it, really, it really is. So all these those three um, key ways to learning. There was the scientific experiment side. There was the analogies and linking different fields together, and then there was the observation and curiosity. All this learning and, and practice that he was doing really came together in some of his his biggest and most well known things. So one one example is the Vitruvian Man. If you know, you see that the naked dude standing inside the circle, which is perfectly uh, anatomically correct. A whole bunch of artists throughout the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, they tried to do this. Basically, no one could get it right until Leonardo came along. Yeah, well, they thought they probably were getting it right until you see someone who's just surpassed you by, <laughs> by so much. Because Leonardo did 20 dissections of the dead human bodies to learn how everything worked and to understand very subtle differences between different people to actually get some rule of thumb rules about the human body. The, uh, there was one wild story when he was, in the, he was passing through the hospital one day and he met a person who was 100 years old. And he's like, oh, my God, that's incredible. I've never met anyone who was 100 years old. About an hour later, that guy died. <laughs> and then Leonardo just went in and said, Licked hey, his lips there, can, I, can, I, um, can, I, uh, can I take this body and uh, do some <laughs> – so he chopped it up because he tried to work out how did this guy die. Um, and he found that things like uh, – uh, I think his blood, his his arteries and, and his veins and stuff had really thickened up um, and uh, had become much more brittle and that was kind of one of his things. But that was a, the first of many dissections. He'd done, as he said, 20 different dissections to work out all the specifics of humans and there's some pretty wild numbers that he worked out. Yeah, so uh, on the notes of his pages, he, he, he found that um, his measurements, for example, the length of the outspread arms is equal to the height of a man from below the chin to the top of the head is one-eighth of the height of the man. From the breast to the top of the head is a quarter of the height of a man. Um, the root of the penis is at half the height of a man. <laughs> He's done some... Roughly, yeah. I guess that's about right. There's some pretty wild stuff um, to work out all these specific things. You can imagine him sitting there in his, uh, in his little studio with some kind of rope to work out all these different lengths with some dead rotting body in front of you. It's a pretty wild thing to do, I guess, you know, five, six hundred years ago. And as a, just a bit of a note that uh, we're not really covering this episode, but a lot of the, his discoveries in doing these things took centuries and centuries later for them to come up with, so mm. how the heart works, how the arteries work. And it turns out a lot of the discoveries of uh, human history were already found in Leonardo's <laughs> right. notebooks, Just and he just didn't publish them and go so hard on them. That's right. And then it, it brings us to one of his uh, most, his probably his second most famous painting, The Last Supper, 
Mate, did you know the Last Supper was on a building? No, I didn't. I didn't. Is yeah. it still um? Is it still there? Yeah, I thought it was a like a, a painting on like a Me too. piece of canvas. Me but too. no, it's a fucking massive thing on the whole like the inside wall of a of a church or something, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty <laughs> insane. Wow. But and, by now that it all fades away and it's pretty much all replaced, <laughs> you'd say. But anyway, it was wild that when uh, when people in the town heard, okay, we got this wild painter. You know, there'd been rumors going around. Leonardo was doing this awesome shit. He was painting on this wall. People would actually just come and watch him work. And uh, it was funny. Some days, they'd be just sitting there waiting like, where the hell is he? And he'd, he'd pop in. He'd look at the wall. He'd do like three brush strokes and then he'd fuck off for the day. <laughs> Whereas other days, he'd get there before sunrise. He'd set up. He'd be sitting there nonstop all day. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't move. He'd just be doing this one thing for like 12, 15 hours on end. Yeah, ins- insane. And it just shows how his brain works. He'd just it'd be all over the shop in some ways, <laughs> but genius in others as well. So... One of the the key insights from Leonardo and where it's so different to all the other paintings is it's really a moment in motion. So rather than just looks like a picture, but it's actually a story when you actually start looking at it. Mm. And we're going to go through this now. So it might be an idea if you're not driving um, to actually get the painting up on your phone or your laptop to to just, you know, have a look as we're talking through it. Yeah, definitely. You think it's, um, as you say, uh, you think it's like a freeze frame. It's like a photo of a specific moment. But really, it does, there's all these different things going on. And it, it really begins at the point in time where Jesus says to his apostles, one of you will betray me. And it's kind of like Jesus, he's feeling pretty sad. And you can kind of see the emotions ripple outwards. Some people are in shock. Some people are angry. Some people are fighting, accusing each other. Uh, and it's, it's pretty wild how he was able to do those, I guess, ripples of emotion across individuals' faces and across a group dynamic as well. Yeah, it was like throwing a stone into the pond. Like a pronouncement causes a ripple outwards. So first you got uh, Matthew saying uh, he's exceedingly sorrowful and and he's asking the question, "Is it I?" If you don't ask that, I think you couldn't. <laughs> I mean, if you're asking that, you're probably safe. Yeah. Oh no, <laughs> you know in your own heart it's not you, don't you? And from John, the disciples began to look at each other, and he was perplexed. And even the apostles on the far left are still um, reaching. The others are beginning to respond and ask questions. So he was masterfully conveying really the motions of the soul here, which you, I think he is. When you really stare at it, the facial reactions, it's uh, there's just a lot going on. It's not just one of our little little drawings. That's for sure, <laughs> that's, little stick figure things. Yeah, that's right. He was uh, he was able to use all these different body language and hand gestures and facial reactions to really communicate exactly what each different person was feeling, and he kind of had all these different. Um, almost textbooks that he'd kind of written about body language and about stuff like that. But as you said, it just it never got published, but he'd really gone deep on all these different emotions and how people reacted physically based on their uh, emotions. Yeah, so for example, he'd say, let the speaker with the fingers of the right hand hold one finger of the left hand, making the two smaller ones close, making it to look as if you're speaking. So it's a way of just conveying mm. motion. And uh, if he's sitting, let him appear as though he's about to rise with his head forward and if you represent with him standing, make him lean slightly forward um, with body and head towards the people. Mm. So it's a lot of specific things going on and that's obviously someone sitting there observing movement and what it actually looks like in a still frame motion. That's right. And probably the, the other really wild thing about this painting, again, the intersection of science and art, all these studies of mathematics and uh, optics and perspective and all these things, he realized that, okay, we've got this massive wall, but we're in a small room and he had to manipulate it in a way 
that at every point in the room, whether on your, the far left or the middle or the far right, that you could look at the painting and it would kind of look the same. And also that he said the, the best thing to look is probably you know 30 meters behind you because it's so big. He had to try to do the painting in a way that if you're really close to it, it still feels realistic. So he was uh, there's a whole bunch of wild shit that he did to manipulate the perspective so that wherever you are in the room, it looks phenomenal. And now the Mona Lisa. Uh, the most famous painting in history. I never wondered why. Um, I've never been a connoisseur of art myself, which is probably why I really like this book because it kind of just added that um, understanding of what goes into some artwork and something like the Mona Lisa, you do get an understanding of how insane it really is. Yeah. Between the, the Last Supper and the Mona Lisa, he actually went to work for Cesare Borgia, who was the inspiration for the prince in Machiavelli. He was basically a, an evil sort of ruler Obviously, the you know the prince very manipulative. He, what he did for him he was designing all these military weapons. He was like designing massive crossbows. He was designing uh, things that you can you know whack horses with and yeah. <laughs> behead horses with and all this stuff. And uh, it was a pretty wild time of his life. And then he eventually went back to nice peaceful painting. <laughs> mm. So mate, it was a bit of a wild wild ride here. We got fifteen oh three started all the way up until fifteen seventeen toward mm. um, when he died. So. What's that? Fourteen years, Astro, of going yeah. hard at this, yeah. And uh, the whole time, we'll get into it in a second. The whole time, not doing it for anyone else but himself. He could have sold it. He could have made a lot of coin and retired. Mm. He could have, but the whole time it was from he carried it with him. It was originally for someone else, but then <laughs> he never gave it to him because he he wanted this to be his life's work. Yeah. Eventually, this rich silk merchant said, "Hey, my I've got a brand new wife. She's turning twenty four. I'd like to give this to her as a birthday present." He was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll take your money." But then just never gave it to him. He just took it with him everywhere he went, and over fourteen years did little tweaks and little changes and added extra thin layers of oil and all this stuff um, until eventually, as you say, he died. It was he probably would have just kept kept tinkering with it forever. So really, this is the culmination of thousands of notebook pages of light rays striking curved objects, all these dissections of human faces, geometrical volumes transformed into new, new shapes, his studies of hydraulics and flows of turbulent water, the analogies between the earth and the human bodies, particularly if you look at the background of this painting, and it helped him to really fathom all the subtleties of depicting motion and emotion. So it's this insatiable curiosity that leaps from one subject to another, which made him and probably only him in all of history be able mm. to put something together like this. That's right. All his studies, uh, intense studies of all those different fields really come together into this one painting. Normally, most the arc of most painters, I guess, is to paint their whole lives and just get really good at painting, whereas he was able to go wild into all these different fields, come back to painting and create the best painting in history. Okay. So, again, I reckon um, get it out, whip it out, the painting. The painting, yeah. The painting, whip it out. Um, and begin looking at it. So, it begins with the preparation of its wood panel. So, he started with a thick primer coat with lead white rather than more typical gesso chalk and white pigment. And so, there's a lot that goes on in this undercoat that uh, you probably wouldn't... wouldn't uh, this is another area of study which he perfected just so it doesn't compromise what comes later in his painting. Yeah, the, the types of oils that he used for the actual painting were somewhat translucent, is that... Anyway, basically, the, the light can go in and get reflected back off this under this undercoat, this board, that, this plank that he prepared. So it was really, um, that's kind of, that was the first big innovation was the, the different primer coat that allowed these, the light to reflect in such a way. So he uses glazes that had a very small pigment mixed into the oil. So he didn't have these big thick blabbery oil things <laughs> to get it done quickly. Everything was just tiny bits of paint the whole time. 
and which made him able to to do some real subtle things like the shadows on her face. He he pioneered the use of iron and manganese mix to create a pigment that was burnt umber in color and absorbed in oil well. And the brush strokes were so delicate that they were actually imperceptible. And over time, it turned into something. But with each brush, it pretty much added <laughs> nothing. nothing. Basically, <laughs> nothing, nothing happens. And nothing happens. That, I suppose that's why it took him 14 years to eventually That's why everyone got pissed off at him. Because people, <laughs> people um, in the book, people did pay, hey, Leo, can you make me this? We know you're a genius. We're going to give you whatever you want. Then you go and see him. And three years later, nothing's happened. <laughs> you look at the you look his at style. The, you you leave you leave and there's a, a a blank white bit there. You come back and it's ever so slightly changed. And he's like, "Nah, sorry guys, I've got another yeah. I've got another eleven years to go before this." And is you done. paid him five grand. <laughs> you paid him five grand for that day. He's he's charging good money, Leo. And there's not and you just see him do that all day and nothing's happened. You think this guy's taking the piss? Yeah, definitely. Uh, another thing, obviously, with that study of perspective, like he applied in in the the Last Supper, uh, he also had this, you know, the. The Mona Lisa, she feels physically close to us. The hands and the body feel very close, in fact. But then you, you see the jagged mountainscapes all the way in the background that they're way behind her. And what he actually did was he, I suppose normally what most painters would do was they would draw the body and then they draw the, the uh, background around them and try to make them look as if, you know, they were, look make it look as good as possible. Whereas what Leonardo did was he did the background fully and then he painted over the top the, the, the person so that they were actually different. Because he was a merchant for the finest silk himself, uh, he put a lot of delightful details in the layers of, of clothing um, to a really interesting degree. So to appreciate the care that he took, uh, all you can only do it in modern times because you need a high-resolution reproduction to focus on a specific tiny area and here the neckline of the of the dress and it begins with two rows of braided spirals in a pattern um, that Leo loved but between the interlocked golden rings there's a tiny bit of light that hits it in three dimensions and the next row is a series of knots so if you're zooming out a little bit it probably looks like a mistake here when things are slightly broken but when you actually get it in that high resolution you see that that was intentional. That slight break was intentional and things are slightly off because in 3D, the, there's a little caress uh, where, where that dress is, a little yeah. crease. Yeah, going back all the way to his study of how a, a sheet draped over a, a clay model and doing all those different things, he obviously had developed uh, a skill far greater than everybody else. And I guess the Mona Lisa's breasts was this uh, equivalent now that he had the clothes draped over the breasts and he was able to do it so specifically, so perfectly. As you say, it might look like something is a bit wrong, but it's actually anatomically perfect. The way that the different light goes, the different creases, and it's a pretty wild thing to focus. Like, most people wouldn't even notice, but he's gone to so much detail and so much specificity to just get this 100% perfect. And then you've got this smile. It's the, the world the most famous smile of all time. It's very weird. Uh, like, if you look at it, have a good stare. I've never had a good stare until I've had this. And so, and there's a lot of mystery that comes out of this. Never in a painting so much motion and emotion, the, the, really the touchstones of Leonardo's art being these two things are uh, intertwined. Yeah, there's so many different emotions, I guess, captured on this face. You can't, it's kind of hard to tell. Is it is it anger? Is it happiness? Is it sadness? Is it anguish? Is it contempt? Is it disgust? But the more you look at it, the more it kind of changes as well. You can see little flickers. Sometimes it looks as if it's um, there's one emotion. Sometimes you look again and it seems to change somehow. But obviously, the painting itself is not changing, but how we're perceiving it has changed. Well, that's it. It changes when you stare at it. 
until when you zoom out and it's at the corner of the eye and it's a little bit blurred and then you're a bit far away. It keeps changing and it's actually what it what it actually looks like. So with this knowledge, Leo really created an uncatchable smile that one is so elusive that you can't really see it and, and capture it mm. every time you look at it, something different. And of course, it does get underpinned by his understanding of, of gutting the human body and, and tweaking the lips so many times to understand how <laughs> right. the inner mechanics of it all. And that other technique we, we spoke about, how we uh, perfected this formato technique, if you try to look at the Mona Lisa, there's no lines. You can't actually see here's where her face ends and here's where the, the water behind her starts. They, they're all blurred into one because that's how we see. We don't just see uh, hard, sharp lines in real life. We see things uh, as, I guess, as all part of one big thing and all sort of blurring together. He's, he's made the 2D look 3D and look realistic through this sfumato technique. So it became the most famous uh, painting in the world, not just by a bit of hype and happenstance and luck, but because when you look at it, you feel an emotional engagement with her, unlike any other painting really. Um, and she provokes a complex set of psychological reactions for the person who's watching. And most miraculously, if you look at it, it kind of seems like she's aware and uh Conscious of, of you looking at her and conscious of mm. herself. Um, <laughs> it is. It's pretty freaky. It is very freaky. I suppose probably the sad part is that now all everyone does is they go to the Louvre and they just go and they, they all fight in the mosh pit to get their hands up to take a photo of it as opposed to actually looking at it um, and, and feeling it. And I we suppose, need to pick for Insta, man. That's yeah, what it comes that's right. down to. That's right. They don't even look at the Mona Lisa. They turn around, look the other way and get the selfie going back <laughs> with Mona Lisa over the shoulder. They never even look at the Mona Lisa. So what about all those critics? The, 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 the old boss who was sitting there going, you've done nothing today, Leo. You've done nothing, mate. You're squandering so much time immersed in the study of all these random things that have got nothing to do with anything. Um, patterns of the cosmos... Now, to all those people in history, the Mona Lisa answers them with a smile. So, at the start of this uh, episode, we mentioned how it was kind of unhelpful to toss around the word genius because it kind of put him as some kind of superhuman uh, bestowed by heaven that is, you know, he's somewhat separate from us mere mortals. But I suppose as we've gone on, you, you've got to admit that genius is definitely a word we should be using. Yeah, well... In many ways, it was something that he wasn't born with. It was something that he was actually earned through mm. through the, the style and manner he conducted himself with. And it is true that he was a mere mortal with a lot of flaws in how he operated, but also that intense uniqueness and curiosity that led him to, to learn and that what deep practice um, mm. and that pain and the struggle in the brain to actually get to somewhere that he actually engaged in. Yeah, there was a whole bunch, I suppose the, the genius side of how incredible all this stuff was, but then also the human side that there's a whole bunch of stuff that he never even finished. As you said, the, the scientific method was one thing that he was doing it, but never told anyone else how to do it. And it wasn't until hundreds of years later that it was rediscovered. Um, there was also, he had this massive horse monument where he had dissected a horse and made this enormous monument. There was this massive painting called The Adoration of the Magi uh, about a big battle scene that he abandoned halfway through. There are all these flying machines. You know, we say that he invented the, the helicopter, but it actually never flew. There was tanks that never rolled. There was rivers that he was meant to divert that never got diverted. There was pages and pages and pages of all these different potential textbooks, really, on on uh, scientific theory, on anatomy, on painting, all these things that he'd... Uh, bird watching. He had a whole textbook on bird watching that he'd never really published, that he never really finished. 
Yeah, it was with all that, it was his wild imagination mixed in with his creativity and, and high intellect because he wasn't afraid to just go after some of the things that edged on just stupidity <laughs> That's right. or fantasy at the time. Uh, for example, like flying machines and water. Pro- I remember um, being in Rome and being in a little Leonardo um, a mock-up of a workshop. In hindsight, I wish I read this book before going in, so I would have <laughs> yeah. appreciated it a lot more. Oh, but there totally. was like... Um, mock-ups of his flying machines and things like that and it took pretty much up to the Wright brothers to actually surpass what he came up with when it comes to flying machines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, so what Isaacson is saying is that what really separated Leonardo was obviously he built those extraordinarily uh, intense, intricate skills in all these different areas but the key thing that kind of brought it all together was the creativity it was the ability not to just have the intellect but also the imagination. It was to come up with that idea of making a, a spinning you know, thing that can cut off a horse's head if you're in battle or to come up with a flying machine or to come up with a way to divert an entire river or to come up with doing a, you know, a, the, the painting of the Last Supper and using perspective to make it look phenomenal. Basically, what uh, the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer said about da Vinci, he was saying that um, talent hits a target that nobody else can hit but genius hits a target that nobody else can see. Ooh, I like that. Mm. So there's a bunch of lessons we can take from Leonardo and um, in reading this book and listening to this episode. Firstly, perhaps most obviously, is um, be curious and be relentlessly curious. Einstein was a bit like this. He said to a mate, hey, I've got no special talents, but I am passionately curious. And that's who um, Walter also wrote about. And Leonardo, much like Einstein, he had a few special talents, but... What really made him most inspiring was his wild curiosity. He wanted to know the, the crazy things like why people yawn, why uh, the, the tongue of a woodpecker, the methods of squaring a circle, things that we just seem boring and pointless. He just went balls deep on. Another is to seek knowledge for its own sake. You don't need to, not all knowledge needs to be useful. I don't know how often he was using the idea of the woodpecker's tongue wrapping around its brain. Uh, but sometimes you just need to learn these things for their own sake. Next, to retain a childlike sense of wonder. Um, as a kid, you've, you've, you're full of imagination, you're full of ideas, you're running around, everything's so wild, and then you become a learned human, or what do you, what do you call them, an academic? The lettered, lettered, the lettered man. man. The yeah. lettered man, and things become a little bit more stale. Um, whereas for Leonardo, his whole time, he, he maintained this childlike sense of wonder, and that's how he engaged with the earth. Yeah, you always wondered, why is the sky blue? Einstein also wondered, why is the sky blue? You know, things that you probably as a kid think, look up and think, why is the sky blue? But then we just give up wondering. Well, you ask your parent, why is this, why that? And you just... They, say, parent, they probably just say, yeah, just because. Just <laughs> and because? That's or you make up something <laughs> yeah. that shuts them up. That's what I'd do. <laughs> Another one is to observe. Obviously, his intense uh, observation. We spoke about the birds and the, the different birds, how they fly at different speeds. Um, also, you watch dragonflies and he noticed how they had four different wings and sometimes they were up, sometimes they were down. Like, I don't even know how you'd see four dragonfly wings as they're hovering in the air. But that intense observation where he'd go deep, he'd zoom in, he'd zoom out uh, and looking at everything around him. And also go down rabbit holes. So he filled uh, his opening page of notebooks with 169 attempts to square a circle. In another uh, notebook, he recorded 730 findings about the flow of water. That's another wild (laughs) rabbit hole you could say. Um, in another notebook, he had uh, 67 words that described different types of moving water and uh, he measured every segment of the human body, calculated the proportional relationships 
And then when he'd done all that, he did the same for a horse. That's he right. started cutting up horses and then seeing <laughs> seeing that. So yeah. that's, that's a rabbit hole. That's a horse hole. If I was <laughs> that's a big that's a big hole. That's for sure. Aside from this, we should also procrastinate and get distracted. Um, one of the biggest knocks on Leonardo that was he wasn't finishing things. He was always getting distracted and jumping off to the next shiny thing. But because these things were catching his attention and he went and followed them, they were making uh, his life richer, his mind richer. They were filling it with all these different types of connections. Sometimes, as we said, where he'd go to the Last Supper and he'd come and do three brushstrokes and then go home for the day. That procrastination that he was brewing on it, he was thinking about what do I do next. Uh, you don't. Sometimes the answer isn't just go go go. Sometimes the answer is a bit of bit of a stop, bit of a pause, bit of a productive procrastination. One of the lessons here flies in the face of a lot of the books we've we've spoken about all the time. The key theme is like, hey, don't try and be perfect, because if you try and be too perfect, you're never going to get things done. Mm. But in the case of Leonardo, his looking for perfection was his genius because if he would if he got satisfied at something being yeah it's pretty much there pretty good that's my mvp prototype mm. um he would have got something out that was shit and he would have never landed it where he did <laughs> so there are some times and contexts where uh, seeking perfection is the right strategy another lesson is let your reach exceed your grasp if you're always doing things that are within your grasp you're never going to really push those boundaries. Leonardo was always trying to do things ever so slightly beyond his abilities. And that's really the only way to, to develop and grow and learn. And finally, above all else in the way Leonardo lived his life in terms of metaphors, not being in his own in silos, is that to be open to mystery because not everything needs sharp lines. 